What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, we're not a very new podcast anymore, but uh, for those of you just tuning in for the first time, basically uh, what this podcast is, is or what we do here, is I uh, invite an author on to uh, discuss a uh, book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published, something uh, on something we think you guys would like to uh, hear a conversation about, and then hopefully... Uh, at the end of the podcast, or you know, even in the middle of the podcast, you get your druthers about you. You go out and uh, purchase the book and uh, give it a read yourself. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show, and also by sharing with your friends, since that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Professor F.H. Buckley, and Professor Buckley is a foundation professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University and has been a visiting fellow at the University of Chicago Law School, and has also taught at McGill University Law School and at the Sorbonne. Uh, his work has appeared in, among others, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, U.S. News and World Report, uh, National Review, The New York Post, The American Spectator, The American Conservative, The New Criterion, Real Clear Politics, The National Post, and The Telegraph. And he is the author of The Way Back, Restoring the Promise of America, uh, American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup, uh, The Once and Future King, The Rise of Crown Government in America, Curiosity and Its Twelve Rules for Life, uh, The Republican Workers' Party, How the Trump Victory Drove Everyone Crazy and Why It Was Just What We Needed, uh, The Republic of Virtue, How We Tried to Ban Corruption Failed and What We Can Do About It, Fair Governance, Paternalism and Perfectionism, and The Morality of Laughter. And lastly, he is the author of Progressive Conservatism, how Republicans Will Become America's Natural Governing Party, which was published back in July by Encounter Books, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Professor Buckley, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I, uh, I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, and call me Frank, please. Oh, you got it. Uh, so, um, happy to have you on. It's been a while since I've had a Canadian on the uh, on the podcast. I'm always always happy to have uh, get to get the Canucks on here. Are you, uh, you a big hockey fan? you uh, all geared up for, for hockey season coming up in uh, about a week and a half? Yeah, well, you know, I'm an American, too. Eh? Yeah, I'm, right, I'm right. A duo. I, be- I became an American citizen in 2014. Yeah. Yeah, but no, I just figured since you were a, uh, you know, a Canadian native that, uh, you know, you might... Uh, yeah, go Habs. Oh, you're, you're a Canadian fan. That's cool. All right, yeah, I'd like... Uh, yeah. I'm a Devils fan, but I've always uh, I've always had a soft spot for the Canadians, just because when I was growing up in Jersey when I was a kid, sure. uh, tradition. You know, Mo- yeah, well, no, Montreal is only about uh, basically like a five-hour drive, you know, from my house, and so you could pick up uh, the Canadian games on like AM radio, uh, you know, <laughs> even like five hours south, and it was always yeah. fun, to, always fun to try to you know listen to the games. Uh, in French, you know, and try to <laughs> try to figure out right. what was going on. So I've always, like I said, I've always had a soft spot for the uh, Canadians. But uh, anyway, enough hockey talk. Um, so uh, the book. Uh, so what made you want to write this book? What was the what was the genesis of it? And uh, and more to that. What well, it, it, oh, go ahead. Sorry. 
Yeah, it seemed to me that uh, a lot of people had kind of gone crazy uh, <laughs> on the left, particularly, but uh, also on the right. And what had been left out was the vast majority of Americans who are commonsensical and, you know, normal and, and middle of the road on a whole lot of issues. And that explained, I think, the Trump victory in 2016. I was a Trump speechwriter. I helped craft the campaign themes in 2016, so I kind of know what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and we've forgotten all of that. And uh, right now, if you, you know, read the mainstream newspapers or if you watch TV, politics has become a total zoo. And so what I try to do is say, look, you know, you know that's not who we are. You know, we're not crazies. And, you know, when a politician finds a way to connect with ordinary voters, he's going to do really well. And the best example of that recently, I'm in Virginia, and my state governor, Youngkin, managed Mm. to do exactly that. And I think that's the future of the Republican Party. I mean, the, the, the Dems at this point are so invested in craziness that I don't know they can dig themselves out. But that leaves, you know, an opening for... Uh, you know, a moderate conservative party. And what I wanted to do was to connect the GOP with its historical roots, right? Um, you know, I think for a lot of conservatives or a lot of right-wingers, history kind of began in 1964 with Barry Goldwater. And I wanted to say, well, yeah, but, there, you know, there was an older party with older themes, and they included Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt and Dwight Eisenhower, and uh, Roosevelt and Eisenhower in particular call themselves progressives. And so I thought, hey, that's, you know, that's really interesting. What does that word mean? You know, where does it come from? And in what sense is the Republican Party progressive or was progressive? This at a time when progressivism is basically a badge for every wing, every kind of, you know, left wing nuttiness that you can imagine. So, yeah, so there was an older sense in which um, the party stood for a lot of really decent things. I mean, at its, you know, at its origin with Teddy Roosevelt, the progressives were against money and politics, right? And and we've kind of given up on that. Um, Corruption should be a big issue for the GOP. Because, you know, guess where the corruption is coming from. But instead, we've kind of given the issue away to the left. You know, we allow these guys, the Democrats, to parade themselves as, you know, the pure party, which is, you know, absolute craziness. Right. And, and, And that's an issue which connects with the American people. Right. And which belongs to the GOP. And it was part of the Trump campaign in 2016, right? Remember Drain the Swamp? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And so, you know, my story is, you know, this is where Trump was coming from in 2016. He was a different candidate from all of the other people on, you know, campaigning at the time for the Republican GOP nod, right? And, And what was specifically different about him was an element of progressivism, which expressed itself in, amongst other things, a concern about corruption, which which other Republicans didn't want to talk about. So, you know, his, his, his big themes were ones I worked on. They were about 
the American dream about how Americans want to live in a country where everybody can get ahead and where their kids will have it better than they did. That's the American dream. And, uh, you know, in 2014, when they were polled, Americans said, no, we don't believe in it anymore. We don't think it's happening. And that, that should have been the signal for a complete voter revolt, right? And it was with Trump, but everybody else in the GOP missed it. It's just a huge issue. I mean, we, we become hierarchical and immobile. And, you know, we're still, we allowed the Democrats to seize that as their issue. Uh, Obama made that his issue in 2012, you know, and, and we didn't really take them on. So if you ask your standard right winger about things like, hey, we're no longer mobile as a country, we're kind of aristocratic, we've got these elites in power, and they're not going anywhere, and their kids are going to do well, and, and kids at the bottom will not do well, that's the definition of an aristocracy. You know, and, and the right wing didn't want to pick up the issue. But, you know, guess what? Most Americans thought this is a huge issue. It's, you know, we define ourselves in terms of the American dream. And and we allowed Obama to parade himself as the agent of change to produce the American dream. I mean, we have, you know, we, it's like we have all this ammunition and we give it away to the other guys. And I'm saying, no, take it back. These are our issues. Well, and this is what really is important to Americans. I don't think, uh, all due respect, I don't think any, I mean, pretty much that's standard rhetoric for any Republican candidate for the presidency is uh, talking about um, the American dream and making sure that our kids have a better life than we do and uh, et cetera, et cetera, all that sort of stuff and, you know, wrapping yourself on the flag and all that. Um, and that, but the, the thing about, American America being becoming less mobile. I don't think that's necessarily true either. I mean, at least the the census data doesn't uh, <laughs> doesn't show that. I mean, so I mean, I just looked this up because I was curious about it um, after reading the book and um, the new census data, and I got this from uh, Mark Perry at uh, over at uh, the American Enterprise Institute. So, um, yeah, we hear a lot about, about how the middle class in the United States is shrinking, um, and that is true uh, to a degree, but it's true uh, not because people are dropping out of it into a lower class. It's true because people are moving out of it into the upper class. So back in uh, – so um, – so the middle class. Well, you, 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 you made three points already. Well, I'll, I'll, before you get on to a fourth, let me try to take respond to what you've said up to now. Okay. So number one, you said, "Oh, this is sort of standard right wing fare," and I want to say, "Well, not quite." Okay. Because mm-hmm. you know, number one, you know, the right wing think tanks like AEI will go out of their way to say, as you just did now, "No, no, there's no such thing." You know, we're totally mobile. Well, you know, actually we're not, okay? And in terms of comparisons with other countries, which is really what matters here, um, they're egalitarian and we're not, okay? So if you're born in the bottom 10% or the top 10%, your chances of descending down from the top or moving up from the bottom are way higher in Canada, for example, than they are in the United States 
or in Denmark or in a host of countries. So compared to the rest of the first world countries, no, we're aristocratic. Actually, we're kind of like England in that respect. So, you know, when you want to talk about aristocracy, I think what you want to talk about is, is cross-country comparisons, where, where frankly, well, it, we do it's, poorly. It, it's kind of hard to compare the United States, which is a polyglot nation of 300 and almost 400 million people, with Denmark, which is like, you know, 4 million white Danes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's very yeah, hard. All of or, them, even, yeah, or even or even or even to Canada, um, you know, which is our well, neighbor. First of all, Canada is more diverse than the United States. Okay. Uh, like I don't know about nothing. that. Can, Canada's like ninety. Canada's like ninety percent white or Asian. Uh, no, you're totally wrong. No, I mean, that's. I mean, I just. I literally just looked that up. You literally are wrong. Canada is seventy-two percent white. America is seventy-two percent white. I said. White. I said white and Asian. So it's ninety percent white and Asian. Only three percent black in Canada. Only one point three percent Hispanic. The United States. Actually, is, it's not. It's. It's more like you know, 5% black, and, and there are Native Canadians as well. You know, I don't want to argue these kinds of points with you because we're not getting anywhere. Well, I mean, um, just... But, but can I continue? Sure. But Canada is, you know, much more, much more diverse, certainly in terms of immigrants. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there are a lot of immigrants, and a lot of them are from Asian countries. Um, Canada is about you know, 20% foreign born and we're about 14% foreign born. So you want to, you, you know, you want a multi a multicultural city, go to Toronto. Okay. Where you'll really find it. So anyway, look, you know, let's get back to the point I was making. If you look at statistics in terms of a correlation between the earnings of parents and children, really fathers and sons, what you're looking at is an America, which is far less mobile than, uh, most other first world countries. I don't. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just. Okay. I just. I don't think. I mean, just the numbers on that just don't bear that out. Like I said, the middle. Okay. Well, I, you know, I, I I give the numbers in my book and I give a citation where I'm getting it. Well, then I'm, I'm going to talk. So, these are these are the these are the newest census numbers from the United States, 2021. So yeah, I don't think things changed a lot from a book I published in July. But let me move on to your second point. <laughs> So, you know, number one, we have a factual dispute there. Um, it's one in which, by the way, the Democrats are cleaning the clock of Republicans, and the Republican attitude is, I'm all right, Jack. And what I'm saying is, that may work for right-wingers, but it doesn't work with the American voter. Are you talking about inequality? So we're giving away a big issue. The second point... Are you, I'm sorry, are you talking about inequality? Is that what you're talking about? I'm talking. Um, I'm talking about mobility. I mean, the American dream was really centered on kids, on your kids having it better than you do. So Which they do. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Mobility. Right. And I'm, I, that's what I was trying to point out is that they do, and the numbers back that up because the amount of people. Okay. Can we move on? Because I think you're factually wrong. Well, you haven't even you haven't even listened to the facts I'm trying to present. So how can you tell me I'm wrong if you haven't even heard what I'm going to tell you? How can you say it's wrong if you haven't even heard it? Well, you you did I did hear it. No, you didn't. We you did know, you cut, no, you cut me off. You okay, didn't. you talk. All right. Talk. So again, so the middle class, what's generally considered the middle class, so anywhere between thirty-five thousand to a hundred thousand dollars a year, that's how it's measured in the United States. 
the middle class, those households with incomes between thirty-five and one hundred thousand dollars. That's in real dollars and inflation-adjusted dollars, twenty twenty twenty-one dollars, whatever you want to call it. That has shrunk from 1967 to 2021, from 55% to 39%. However, the share of households earning over $100,000 a year has tripled from 1967, from 12% in 1967 to 36% in 2021. And the number of low-income households, which are those earning under $35,000 a year in the United States, that has shrunk from 1967 from 33% to 25% in 2021. So, in 1967, 67% of households were in the middle class or higher in the United States. Now, in 2021, 75% of households are in the are in the middle class or higher in the United States. So, if the country is becoming less mobile, how is it that more and more families are either entering the middle class or entering into the middle or out of the middle class into the upper class? Well, 20 minutes ago, that was the third point you raised, so I was going to get to it after the second point you raised 20 minutes back. But going to your third point right now, in my book, I looked at that, and what I discovered was that in terms of the shrinking middle class, an equal number of people were moving up as we're moving down. So, you know, this is what the statistics reported at the time and which I wrote about and cited in my book. So, you know, um, there is a middle class class crunch that's going on. I don't think too many people are disputing the problem of the disappearance of a lot of formerly secure white-collar jobs. This was one of the reasons why Trump was elected. I mean, basically what you're saying is the premise of the Trump victory in 2016 was totally wrong, and we should all be right-wing. And I guess what I'm saying is, no... What Trump represented, this was the second point you raised mm-hmm. about 25 minutes ago. The second point was you said, well, Trump merely repeated what every other right-winger was saying at the time. And I wanted to say, no, in fact, we were doing something very different in 2016. We were specifically taking on standard you know, right-wing ideology at the time. Uh, it was, as you point out, standard fare for people to say the salvation of a system is basically the free enterprise system. And the Trump campaign didn't want to take on the free enterprise system per se, but it did want to say, you know, a couple of things. It did want to say, number one, we're not going to take on entitlements, right, which, you know, which right-wingers didn't like. And number two, we didn't think that, you know, the answer to the problems were to be found totally in terms of things like uh, reducing the corporate tax rate. We thought that reducing the corporate tax rate was important, but in terms of a tax bargain in 2017, uh, the Trump agenda was a failed agenda because Trump could not cut deals with Paul Ryan in the House. So the only thing that came out of 2017 was, which was very benign, uh, which was a reduction in the corporate tax rate, and Trump was totally behind that. But other elements in the Trump package, which would involve taking on perks uniquely for the benefit of the top one percent that didn't go anywhere because it was blocked by a right-wing congress which so, which uh which uh, things are you talking about specifically that were attacking i'm talking about the tw- go ahead. i'm talking oh in the 2017 tax reform act trump wanted to get into some perks loopholes that benefited the 
the, the richest Americans. And I, I, you know, I, I really don't want to get into the specific specifics there because, you know, Trump, in fact, very much wanted the corporate tax reform, and mm-hmm. it was spectacularly effective in terms yes. of restarting the American economy. But I, you know, but I offer that as an example of, um, you know, what a progressive conservative government would be. Now, I, you know, I end my book with, uh, you know, a, a contract with America, which included a lot of ideas about what a progressive conservative government would look like. Um, you know, and, and uh, so, you, you know, one can refer to that. But basically what I hear you saying is, no, Trump, to the extent that Trump deviated from right-wing, gold-right ideology, you disagree with him. Okay, fine. No, I'm just, no, that's not what I'm saying. I just, um, it was just more to the point that you were saying that uh, immobility or, or the country is immobile uh, or moving in the wrong direction when it comes to economic mobility when uh, yeah. you know, the, the I, and I want to just... say these are important points. And I want to say when the right wing gives those points away to Obama, it commits a fatal error and it loses elections as Romney did in 2012. The progressive conservative response to these issues, I think, should be, yes, look, there is a problem about mobility as compared to other countries. And specifically, it's the left that created the problem. So when Mm -hmm. I'm talking about immobility, what I'm talking about are barriers to mobility which the left enacted and then hypocritically said, oh, no, we're going to fix this. Mm -hmm. So what are the kinds of problems I'm talking about? One is open borders. Now, right-wingers typically love open borders. Uh, They'd love to import... I mean, like hardcore libertarians do, but I mean, those are probably... Like the only, okay. I mean, maybe well, like, anyway. maybe like Cato, the Cato Institute, or, you know, those kind of, or reason, yeah. reason, well, but, those are, you know, but I don't think, uh, like Heritage or AEI or, you know, any of those, uh, the, you know, the, the sort of mainstream Republican affiliated, uh, think tanks. I don't know what are. the mainstream is anymore. Heritage has gone MAGA, right? Um, yeah. Cato has, uh, an ideological purity, which I respect and a lot of you know, a lot of nice, fine people. So mm-hmm. I disagree with them, but I think they're 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 they're, they're great people. No, the the problem with open borders, as it connects to mobility, which is the point I was desperately trying to make here, was mm-hmm. that we import immobility through open borders, right? In other words, open borders represent a wealth transfer from poor Americans to rich Americans. Rich Americans are able to buy services more cheaply. Poor Americans find their jobs competed away. So, uh, you know, and the immigrants we're taking in earn less than Americans, and their children earn less than the children of Native Americans, and their grandchildren as well. So the immobility effect lasts through generations. Secondly, schools, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, we, yes, the right wing is on the side of school choice, but connecting this with a broader problem of mobility, um, you know, education is supposed to be a an escalator to middle class status, and we've taken that away. And how have we done that? Well, you know, we're providing jobs for a you know, mainly white teaching force that is solidly democratic. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a absolutely loyal democratic constituency, and so. We're favoring a white constituency, and we're hurting Americans, and we're hurting uh, American mobility as a consequence. And then, you know, and th- then the regulatory briar patch is something that employs 
liberal professionals, white liberal professionals in yeah. America in terms of their jobs in the, as regulators or as compliance officers in, right. in, in, in corporations. The blob, basically. Uh, totally a problem of mobility. So I think, you know, yes, the right is on the right side of all of those three issues. All, all I'm trying to do is say, hey, this connects with a broader issue about mobility and um, you kind of throw the game away if you don't make that connection. And in particular, when you permit Obama to say, no, no, I'm, you know, the Democrats are the party of mobility, you know, that's absolutely wrong because what we should be doing is accusing them of being flat-out hypocrites. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, to the education uh, issue, I mean, not even, I mean, granted, uh, the whole education industry is basically, like you said, uh, just a, uh, sort of a sinecure for, uh, you know, for effectively white liberals. Um, but it's not even just the, the teaching, uh, the, um, teaching, the amount of teaching jobs has stayed, uh, sort of, I mean, they've increased over like the last 20 years or so. Uh, but not nowhere, uh, but nowhere to the degree, to the degree of the amount of counselors and, um, uh, administrators and all these other uh, things um, in public schooling. So when you know we may be increasing budgets for public schools, but by doing that, we're not necessarily making sure that those dollars actually get into the classroom. Uh, those no, dollars, they're, those they're dollars are going. Either. Those dollars are going to pay for, like I said, a, you know, this sort of a grief counselor or or this sort of counselor or this administrator, administrator or a, you know. Uh, yeah, a vice principal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that sort of stuff. Yeah, again, the comparison with Canada is interesting because number one, um, the teaching staff K twelve in Canada is one half per capita size as United States, and number two, in terms of the results, um, you know, we'd be a vastly wealthier country if we had K twelve schools with the quality of Canadian schools. Uh, people have reported. Um, 50% of Americans can't, American adults can't read at grade six level. Mm-hmm. You know, grade six level is something like, you know, if you have people coming in to install some equipment and there's an instruction seat, they can't read it. Yeah. So, you know, you know when you look at the, the PISA scores, the international scores put out by the OECD, it's incredible how bad we are. I mean, people, I mean, there'd be a, there should be a revolt of people realize just how bloody awful American K-12 education is. And, and yet, you know, people accept it. It's just, uh, it, it's, um, astounding to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can say in part, it's simply typical American hubris. You know, this is the greatest country in the world. Well, you know, it, it ain't, um, you know, and in terms of education, this is really a mediocre country. It's a mediocre country in terms of K-12, and I had some specific proposals about you know, university education, which I think also is, on average, really pretty bad internationally. Oh, did you see that story? Um, was it? Yeah, it was this week, I think, in the Times about the. It was at NY. It was either at NYU or Columbia. I can't remember. It was one of the New York City schools where um, basically the chemistry professor at <laughs> yeah. NYU. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Uh, yeah, the uh, a really respected chemistry professor, <laughs> a guy who literally wrote the book, uh, flunked about a third of his students, and they complained, and the university fired this guy, right? 
Um, and, and all they were saying is, hey, we want to go to med school, and this is going to kind of make it hard because <laughs> the course in question is organic chem, and you've got to do well in organic chem to get into law school. And he's just, you know, he's just torpedoed our career. Well, you know, guess what? We're yeah. talking about the kind of people who are going to be treating you in 15 years' time. And, and you know, good luck with that. Yeah. No, it's just interesting because I was uh, reading another uh, book uh, sort of about the the uh, the problems with higher education. And uh, part of it, uh, you're talking about the great inflation, you know, how basically – <laughs> especially the more elite uh, school you go to uh, you, go, you go to one of these elite schools basically the an a is the is the average grade uh, you know kids are getting in classes that sort of thing like not a C they've been graded to an A but um, the problem is where they were talking about that the rise of the adjunct uh, professor the non-tenured uh, professor to teach these uh, to teach these lower level courses these you know the uh, uh, organic chems and uh, all these other courses uh, that the uh, tenured faculty um, you know, can't be bothered to do uh, for a lot of stuff because they're too busy because they have to you know do research and all the other stuff that sort of takes precedent um, sort of gets left to the adjuncts who the universities can pay very little and to the TAs and all that sort of stuff. And because uh, more and more of these classes are going in that direction with uh, a non-tenured faculty uh, teaching the course, that the uh, because the non the adjuncts are trying to get a, a on a faculty track or excuse me a tenure track at some school somewhere. I mean, maybe not at the school they're teaching at right now, but somewhere. So they don't want to screw that up. So they basically grade the kids very lightly because they don't want the you know they don't want the poor uh, professor ratings online. They don't want the kids to go and complain about them uh, online. So the professors are just saying, well, the hell with it. Why do I care if a kid gets a B minus or a B or a B plus or an A minus or you know uh, a C plus? I'm just going to give the kid what he wants or bump him up a grade and just you know wash my hands yeah. of him and not have to do um, you, you know, and just not have to worry about that as a thing. Let me make a, a plug here for an idea I had about higher ed. Now, go for it. The broader point is this: that uh, do we have time? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Yeah, the broader point is this: um, the thing about being a progressive conservative is y you don't want the left to be the sole agent of change. Uh, you know. Edmund Burke, Benjamin Disraeli, other people in that tradition said, you know, changes will sometimes be needed. They should come from us because if we let the other guys do it, it's going to be so much worse. So a good example of that is the Biden plan to forgive educational loans. So I had a, I had a proposal along those lines, but it was radically different. I mean, first of all, you know, the problem is, we've got an open-ended subsidy of higher ed in all of this. Other countries decided, yeah, yeah, we're going to subsidize higher ed. We'll, we'll back student loans. But the deal we have to make with the university is you have to cap your tuition. Mm -hmm. So we didn't make that deal. Right. So tuition went through the roof, yep. you know, unsurprisingly. So, you know, I had a, a complicated suggestion. Number one, 
I don't think that we should be guaranteeing, in anybody should be guaranteeing student loans above, say, 20000 in tuition or 25000 You know, you can get a good education at your state university if you do that. And mm-hmm. if you want to go to some place that charges $80,000, let daddy pay for it. The second thing is I would have permitted a bankruptcy discharge of student debt, but I would have required that, this is something I've been arguing for some time, that the brunt, that the cost of this be borne by the universities themselves. I mean, I, you know, I made this pitch in the White House several times during the Trump administration. I was always shut down by the Department of Education people. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is if the universities have to bear the economic risk of the students being jobless after graduation, there are certain kinds of job-destroying courses they won't be teaching. What will disappear quickly are all the crazy gender study programs. Engineering will do fine. So I think will, you know, traditional humanistic education, you know, for guys who want to go to law school or whatever, right, or who have rich daddies. Um, But, you know, the women's studies, you know, the gender studies, the uh, transgender studies, studies, watch them disappear fast. Yeah. Because universities would be spending themselves into bankruptcy if they subsidize that. Yeah. Um, so you're not in favor, or uh, are you kind of in favor of Biden's uh, the loan bailout? Or no, I'm, no, no, no. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm totally opposed. It's, okay. it's okay. an example of yeah, how yeah. when they do it, they'll do it exactly the wrong way. <laughs> right. All right. Um, so and why and, and you know and why we should pick up a slack and, and be agents of change ourselves. Right. So because you know there is a problem with a student who's got a debt load where he can't conceivably ever dig his way out, right? You know, I mean, the Laffer curve should explain the problem in these kinds of cases. Everything you earn is going to go to the to your pay off your student loans. Mm-hmm. So like 100% tax rates. So you have no incentive to do anything. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to invest in left-wing politics. That's all you got. So it's not a surprise they became progressives. So uh, back to the progressive conservative thing. I don't think we've, uh, I don't think we specifically talked. So uh, what, uh, what is a progressive conservative? What exactly? I mean, if you were going to describe the progressive conservative person, uh, what would uh, what would that person be? Uh, what would he look like? Well, or you, he or you she know, look like? you know what? Yeah, you know what we're not talking about. We're not talking about an ideology. We're not talking about an idea that could be written down in a sentence or two. That's that's never what it was, really. Mm-hmm. This is a recognition that there are problems that are going to be requiring sensible solutions, and you have to look carefully at the way the problems might emerge from the left and respond to them. But I will say one thing more about where the progressive tradition, conservative tradition emerges in America, and uh, I want to say... It emerges from the West, and our problem has been in terms of an American right wing that defines itself in terms of a one-sentence um, ideology, shrink the state down to nothing, or you know, North-South relations centered over slavery and the like, right? Uh, and you know, a lot of you know revered conservatives were on the wrong side of that one. Mm-hmm. No, I want to say, think of it, America, in terms of West versus East, because the West is the natural home of a lot of American conservatism 
particularly as explained by Frederick Jackson Turner in his Frontier Thesis. What he wanted to say was states out west competed for people. Wyoming became the equality state. It, it liberalized itself. It became more democratic, right? So it was specifically on the side of mobility, of getting ahead. You want to get ahead, move west. Okay, that was Horace Greeley. It was on the side, the West saw itself as uh, virtuous and the East as corrupt. So that was part of the Trump campaign, drain the swamp. And, and the West was American nationalistic, as opposed to a more cosmopolitan East, which, you know, which had a cultural cringe over Europe. Um, so, you know, all of those things turned out to be important themes you know, deep down buried in the Trump campaign and, and, and they worked right. And they didn't work in 2020 cause it was a crazy year, but they worked in 2016. And I think what we're waiting for now is someone to reimagine those themes, pick them up again, but you know, shorn of the craziness that we're seeing from Mar-a-Lago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, as, uh, just for the record, for everybody in, uh, who hasn't read the book, I mean, you're basically, you, you say all over the book, it's time to move on from Trump, the man, yeah. uh, to lead uh, this new coalition or uh, emerging uh, party. Everybody's had his day. Trump is getting up there in terms of age. My very strong prediction is that at some point between now and 2024, He'll report to us that on his doctor's advice, he's not going to run. And, you know, thank heavens for that. Because we need that to happen before the Republicans can win again. Mm-hmm. Do you have anybody you uh, you like specifically? Well, yeah, I there? mean, a lot of people are, are talking about DeSantis. I mean, mm-hmm. my, you know, what I like about my guy, Youngkin, is that Virginia is more of a middle-of-the-road state Okay, it's kind of a purple state. And if you can win in Virginia, that seems to be to me more the ticket for a broad American victory as opposed to DeSantis or, you know, Texas and Florida are less like America than Virginia is. So I, I think I think Youngkin's ticket was, look, I'm, I'm not going to repudiate the Trump message, but I don't really want to get too close to the guy himself. Yeah, that turned out to be a winner. Well, Florida used to be. I mean, I'm a Floridian now. I've been living down here for 20 years. Florida used to be uh, uh, sort of basically where Virginia is now. I mean, uh, much more purple, uh, but it's trended. Um, yeah, it's trended red over the last. Where I think you could probably consider it at this point. I mean, considering that you know there hasn't been a, a Democratic governor here since the early 90s, since before Jeb Bush. I mean, Charlie Crist, yes, but he was, I mean, technically a Republican when he was governor here. Uh, but, yeah, I think it, it, it's safe to call Florida at this point. Uh, I know a lot of people consider it a purple state, uh, but it seems, uh, I mean, just, I mean, the control of the state house, uh, uh, um, you know, just at the at the Senate level in the United States, uh, it just seems to be just pretty much red at this point. Yeah. Well, there's one other thing, and that is that in terms of personalities, uh, Youngkin is more of a unifier than DeSantis. I mean, mm-hmm. DeSantis is sending the migrants to Martha's Vineyard 
was in what respect brilliant in exposing liberal hypocrisy. Yeah. But it was the kind of aggressive thing that's more associated with, uh, in people's minds, I think, with, with what Trump would have done than what a Yunkin would have done. I don't think Yunkin would have done anything like that, even though Virginia is a net recipient of a lot of, of the migrants. Um, I'm talking about people with the instinct of moderation, which I, you know, frankly, I think we need. To, I mean, don't you, don't you have a sense that there's been just too much craziness in the last couple of years? Oh yeah, and, uh, I mean, I, I it's think kind of time to get back to normalcy. I think there's both parties. I think the base <laughs> of both parties is a little bit cuckoo. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, the, the I mean, the Democrats. I mean, you know, we could talk about that for ten hours, but uh, I think the the Republican primary voter um, is not the. I don't. I I think they don't. <laughs> I don't think the Republican primary voter uh, votes very strategically or thinks about things beyond their sort of immediate gratification of uh, or or the the dopamine hit of the the. You know what I mean, like of the the red meat well, kind of yeah. stuff. Um, I, I, I mean, ask yourself how the suburban mom in Fairfax County, Virginia, is going to vote, and, and you know, and you'll find yourself more closely aligned with with the Yunkin than than with yeah. the, uh, I was the just, DeSantis. I, 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 th- the, I think we need a reality check over mm-hmm. a whole lot of these things, and abortion would be one example of that. So, you know, what would be a reasonable Republican response? To the federalization of abortion law would be well, we'll we'll permit it up to say twenty weeks, but we'll have you know a ban thereafter, save in cases, save in certain exceptions, like obviously the life of the mother. Um, you know, an absolute ban just plays into the hands of the left. Right. Yeah. I mean, states are going to do. I mean. I think it's just going to be a patchwork. Um, you know, pretty, all the blue states are going to have it basically, you know, that you can abort yeah. the or abort the child up until, or even, you know, if it's a botched abortion that you can, you know, do it, you know, even outside of the womb. Um, and I think red states will, uh, you know, move more towards a uh, a total ban or maybe like a six weeks, uh, six weeks, eight weeks, something like that. And I think you'll see. States uh, that are more in the middle um, in their uh, voter profile, uh, you know, will probably do something like 15, something like that. I think it'll eventually. Yeah, we need like we that. need more moral seriousness about all this. I mean, the the left is not morally serious if it thinks more ter- late term abortions are fine. But as for the right, for many years the right has been saying prior to the Dobbs decision, oh well, you know, we're so much more liberal than European countries on this. Well, what the European countries did was they banned abortion after you know after six months, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, um, but it's funny, uh, just about uh, the changing voter profiles. I was uh, talking about this with somebody, um, which is what I've noticed in like the last, uh, you know, like 10, 15 years with just my peer group. Uh, and it's funny how uh, my peer group, basically all my friends who, when we were in our, uh, all my friends who went to college, when they were all in their 20s, they were all Republicans. And now they're pretty much, for the most part, all Democrats. And all my friends who didn't go to college 
in their 20s were pretty much all Democrats. And now um, they're pretty much all Republicans. And I don't know how much I'm sure Trump had a lot to or had something to do with uh, part of that shift. But it's just um, it's funny how well, oh, I wrote a book called The Republican Workers Party. And, uh, you know, that was one of the premises of the campaign. I mean, one of the ideas behind the campaign, which some people have pushed too far, is we've been we've turned into an aristocratic country ruled by an elite. Well, you know, um, people without a university education are smarter than people with a university education in this respect. So I think they get it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right. You have a. I wanted to talk to you about your. You have uh, two chapters at the more towards the end of the book on anti-nationalism and liberal nationalism. Uh, so yeah, you do us a favor. Uh, so what are the two, and uh, what are the problems with with the first? Well, yeah, what I wanted to do was take on some people who call themselves national conservatives. Mm-hmm. And who are these guys? Well, you know, they're guys who are basically simply American right-wingers who attach themselves to the label of nationalism without recognizing the baggage that it carries. So one bit of baggage here is to be an American nationalist is not the same thing as to be a Hungarian nationalist, because an American nationalist has to be loyal to America and the American ideals. And those ideals, I want to say, are a product of the founders and the founders' liberalism. So if you want to say you're a nationalist and you think that the, you know, the ideals of the founders in terms of freedom and liberty are mistaken, you're not much of a nationalist. So, you know, think think a little bit more carefully about whether or not you want to call yourself a nationalist in that respect. So what that does is that excludes uh, some people on the right, you know, some of them are called integralists, you know, they, they want to make America a Catholic confessional state, like ruts are ruck with that. Um, so, you know, these people can't be nationalists. To be an American nationalist means that you're on the side of, uh, you know, of liberty. It also means you like Americans, you know, and there's so many right-wingers I know who really just don't like Americans, Okay, I mean, they're basically snobbish when it comes to American popular culture. You know, and, you know, a moment ago I talked about the frontier thesis and the idea of Mm -hmm. nationalism being Americanism in the West as opposed to an Eastern cosmopolitan group of people. You know, uh, you know, well, there's still a lot of that today. I mean, if, if you if you look, you can be American if you don't like apple pie and hot dogs. Just be, you know, you're more American if you like them. You can be American <laughs> if you don't like Scott Joplin, okay, and you don't like um, the Grateful Dead. You know, it's just you'd be more American if you like them. So I get it. You know, you love America. It's just Americans you don't like, right? <laughs> okay, you know, give me a break from these kinds of people. The other thing, though, is this. Um, part of the baggage of nationalism is a sense of fraternity with other Americans. So the reason why the left never worried about jobs disappearing in West Virginia 
in or in the <clears throat> the Rust Belt is they had no sense of fraternity with these these people. They had a sense of fraternity with you know with minorities, <clears throat> but white people losing their jobs, you know, this, these are the other. We don't care about them. They're all racist. So, you know, if they disappear, that's fine. Well, they had the wrong kind of jobs yeah. too, right? You know, coal mining. Well, they have the wrong are, kind of yeah. jobs, but um, you know, you know, I don't think they do, of course. But right. yeah, what but you're saying is the elite thinks. Yes. So. Right. <clears throat> yeah, they should. They should learn to code. Um, <laughs> right. So, um, if you have that sense of fraternity, you know that implies that you don't want them to suffer. So how do you make them better off? Well, number one, you give them jobs. Okay. Cause once we have jobs, we can look after ourselves, but there are people who can't get jobs because of illnesses or whatever. So in those kinds of cases, you know, yes, the government should have a welfare system that looks after them. So progressive conservatism, you want to know what it's all about. Eisenhower was the most popular president in the 20th century throughout his eight years in office. Why? Well, a big reason was he made his peace with the New Deal. I mean, Americans liked the New Deal. Ronald Reagan liked the New Deal. That's where he came from, right? I mean, Americans wanted that. So, you know, an important part of the Trump message is, you know, we're not going to talk about privatizing Social Security the way, you know, the way right-wingers like to talk about it, right? We're not going to take on entitlements. Okay, because we think that a nationalist government should try to carry everybody along with it as best it can. So, you know, one of the things I recommended, I had this, you know, contract with America in the last chapter, was a form of catastrophic health insurance on a national Mm -hmm. basis. Well, that's going to drive right-wingers nuts. Fine. Okay, but you know what? It's something most Americans want when polled. Right? So... You know, here's, you know, what am I talking about? I'm not talking about, you know, a visit to, you know, for a checkup to a doctor. What I'm worried about is if something happens to you and you end up in the hospital and when you emerge from the hospital a week later, you're bankrupt because the hospital bill has just wiped out all your savings forever. That's what I'm talking about. That's the one thing that bothers Americans. So let's try to fix that. You know, and again, mm-hmm. this is an example of how we can do it right and they'll do it wrong. Obamacare was horrible. Yeah. Right? I mean, they hadn't figured out incentives. They, you know, they cut deals with their buddies in the unions and they, they you know, they, they ended up with plans that vastly increased the cost of medical care or the insurance premium. So that's an example of how they're going to do it wrong. Yeah, and it I'm didn't do any of the things right. they promised it would do. Like it, did, right. it didn't bend the cost curve. You couldn't keep your doctor yeah. if you wanted to. Priming for many places, uh, you know, all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, very early on, you know, I told Jared Kushner, uh, you know, I'm from Canada originally, and Canadian medical care is just way better than people think. It's like they don't have a clue, but you can do so much better than that. And Trump repeated that line the next day. <laughs> so, you know, again, that was an example of kind of a failed progressive conservative agenda. There were all these things that were promised in 2016 which never got off the ground because for the first two years, Trump couldn't cut deals with Congress. You know, the alleged great deal maker couldn't cut deals. And thereafter we had the lunacy and the mendacity of the Russian collusion hysteria, paranoia. Yeah. So this was a failed administration. 
okay? The only thing, you know, where it succeeded was just in such a couple of minor ways. I mean, no, actually the tax bill was huge in terms of restarting the economy. But everywhere else, when you look around, it was just an embarrassing cabinet, right? Staffed with people who really weren't competent, mm. uh, but who were, you know, loved by the right wing. Um, and, uh, and things didn't get done. So I fault Trump for being a failed president, and I fault him for being a loser in 2020. And I don't want to see a two-time loser in 2024. Yeah. Uh, you brought and up the- for that, okay. when I got on to, when I talk about this, by the way, uh, on talk shows, a talk show interviewer called me a Judas for saying I wanted to see <laughs> Trump disappear. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's going to happen. Uh, you brought up the, uh, the Grateful Dead, though, uh, a little bit back in your answer there. Yeah. Are you, are you a deadhead? Well, I've gone to their concerts. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, yeah, I, they're on my, you know. You know they're on my playlist. Yeah, but you're not like a like super. You know, I'm, you don't have like tapes no, of like I, you know. You know is, there, is there such a thing as a moderate deadhead? You know, I don't. You know, like that's, <laughs> that's true. Almost a contradiction. But, that's true. Uh, yeah, that's very true. Yeah, what did uh, I think Jerry Garcia had a line about deadheads or like uh, deadheads are like people who like black licorice. Uh, you know, most people don't like black licorice, but the people who like black licorice really like black. Licorice. I really like black licorice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. No, it's, um, there were things that were special about a certain kind of musician. Hmm. The, the, the Grateful Dead were one of them. So was the, the band, by the way, yeah. which, you know, it's a Canadian mm-hmm. group. So what was special about them was they, when they came up, they kind of incorporated a whole bunch of things going on in American music. Okay, uh, blues, rhythm and blues, rock, folk. You'll find all of that. Yep in the dead or in the in, in the band mm-hmm. and and that i liked because you know part of me wants a unified country part of me likes the idea of everybody being on the same side uh so if you know if you don't like that that's fine it's just i feel better with people who like baseball yeah right well the uh the band they had that great vocal blend too between uh richard manuel and rick danko and and levon yeah. helm i mean the three of them when they were harmonizing on stuff was just uh I don't know. That's probably like my yeah, and you know, and, and the themes were different. Okay, mm-hmm. they came along at a certain point in rock music, um, and they just took it down a whole other road, basically. And, and the, yeah, the idea was we're going back to the roots, and the roots are good. Yeah, I like. Yeah, that. I mean, this is the time when you know, uh, preceding their first album, music in Big Pink, uh, music from Big Pink, uh, where everyone's all psychedelic and and you know interested in going up and out you know into the far out into the realms of consciousness consciousness and you know making the music all far out and then uh, here come the band and they say no we're gonna root this bastard right back into the ground and you know and and that's my kind of nationalism i mean the idea is it's all okay right you know every every part of it is okay right yeah and 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 so, you know, I like it, enjoy it, and there's something great about the country. And if you can understand that, you'll be much happier. Mm-hmm. And it's where most Americans are. And our problem has been, in the last couple of years, one political party and most of the media have preached how rotten and evil the American enterprise is. And, yeah. 
And that's the craziness we have to escape from. Right, right. All right, well, oh, wow, we've already gone 55 minutes. Look at that. All right, um, so we're pretty much at the end. So you kind of might have answered that with your uh, with your last answer, but I always ask the same sort of exit question to everybody that comes on the podcast, and that is um, uh, basically what would you like the audience to get out of this book? So, uh, Or what's the one thing you'd want to uh, a reader to take away from reading it? Ask yourself if you think that America has gone crazy in the last couple of years and ask yourself, how do we get back to what we were? And I think you'll find that it's going to involve kind of a broader recognition of problems all across the board and some inventive responses, which are not rooted in any ideology, but just in a recognition of the totality of American history and the American experience being benign. Connect yourself with the roots of all that's been good in the past in America and carry that forward into the future. All right, great. Very well said. Well, uh, before we go, is there, uh, you got anything else uh, you want to plug? Any appearances coming up, anything like that? Or is there anything new you're working on that we should uh, be on the lookout for? Well, I've got stuff in the pipeline, but it's so far down the line that uh, I don't want to plug it right now. No, I, I you know, um, my book's out there. You can find it on Amazon. All right, great. Progressive Conservatism. Yep, that book is Progressive Conservatism, How Republicans Will Become America's Natural Governing Party. Uh, very, very interesting book. Highly, highly recommend it to everybody out there. Definitely worth a read and uh, definitely uh, get you thinking about stuff. So make sure you go out there. And uh, check that book out. You, you'll uh, you'll enjoy it. So, so again, that book is Progressive Conservatism: How Republicans Will Become America's Natural Governing Party, and the author is Professor F. H. Buckley Frank. <laughs> so, uh, Frank, thank you uh, very very much for uh, coming on the podcast and discussing discussing the book with me. I had uh, had a good time reading it and uh, had a good time uh, discussing it with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Oh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and, and sharing with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us in this podcast, you can reach out to me at tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we also have our uh, Twitter account for the, uh, for the podcast. You can reach out to us there. If you have any questions or comments or anything like that, you know, feel free to you know, send us a DM or... Make sure you give us a follow. Our uh, Twitter handle for the podcast is, what is it, at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So make sure you check that out. And that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye. Yeah.